0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Welcome to Michigan Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk with you and ask you some questions and looking forward to hearing all of the great information and details about your work that you're going to share with me and our audience today. So can you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan? Sure, um, thanks so
1: much, Erica, for inviting me um, for giving me this opportunity. I'm Teresa Satterfield, uh, I'm a professor in Romance Languages, also affiliated with linguistics and the Combined Program of Education and Psychology, CPEP. I also wear another hat, and uh, that is as director of a community outreach and academic Saturday school in Nuestra Lengua, uh, which means in our language. And so we work with Spanish speaking kids and their families to help kind of combat some academic lag that happens that we see a lot uh, in immigrant communities, Spanish-speaking communities.
0: And in what areas does your research focus?
1: So yeah, just like all the hats I wear, uh, my research spans uh, a lot of different areas. So basically I'm a linguist and linguistics is a science that investigates language in myriad forms. So lots of different ways that you can think about. And we ask questions about individual languages and about similarities and differences between languages. Um, And my work actually deals with psycholinguistics and I examine language acquisition basically. And I'm particularly interested in how people come to learn and speak and read uh, their languages uh, and especially the syntax, which means how they order Organize the structures that make up the sentences in their language, and also because um, my work has a social component, so I'm really excited and interested on how society influences our languages. My work is on on a, like a new territory, which is called like sociolinguistic psycholinguistics. So. I cover a lot of different areas um, looking at linguistic knowledge and populations and how people come to speak different languages and how that's affected by the societies and the communities they live in.
0: Such a wide array of focus areas, hats, as you said, and research pieces. And can can you elaborate on what a psycholinguist is? Yeah. So as I said, uh, linguistics, discusses and investigates
1: languages across lots of different disciplines. And one of those is within psychology in a way. So we look at how the mind and mechanisms within the mind and brain are related to language. And so for me, I'm interested in how kids acquire language and the mechanisms, the cognitive mechanisms, the mental um, aspects of acquiring a language. And so When we think about how we learned our first language, most of us don't really ever think about that because we did it when we were babies, right? And so it's nothing that you really have a memory bank on. But uh, I also work with students who are learning a second or third language here at the university. And that process is so interesting to see how they become knowledgeable and fluent speakers of a, a language That is not their maternal language, right? Their mother tongue. And so all of these processes, we document, we study, we measure. And some people look at just kids. Some people compare kids and adults. Uh, Some people look at across different languages uh, on how different kids acquire languages. I look at bilingual. So a lot of times I'm looking at two languages within one brain right? And I'm so privileged to be able to collaborate with lots of very bright grad students and colleagues here at the university. Uh, One of my ongoing and most dynamic collaborations is with uh, Dr. Yulia Kobelman in developmental psychology. Uh, We look at um, the bilingual brain in terms of brain images and cutting edge technology and FNIRS, which uh, allows you to basically take pictures of brain activity and be able to compare, well, what's different between bilinguals and their brain compared to monolingual kids and their brain? And how does that affect issues like literacy or different uh, maybe aspects of language disability or dyslexia or autism. So uh, we're looking at very interesting and really uh, pioneering aspects of language acquisition. And we have the technology and the resources here at the University of Michigan to be able to do this kind of work.
0: And what led you to focus on bilingual children? My work is
1: both personal and professional. And so I come from a household where we speak Spanish and I've spoken Spanish uh, since I was a child. And uh, I know how difficult that experience is and sometimes traumatic. And I understand what um, parents go through when there aren't support systems. uh, Number one, to help their child learn English, and also to help their child maintain the home language and the culture. Uh, And these are aspects that children internalize and affects their academic development, but it also affects their personal development. And so for me, as I said, uh, I personally know how this uh, has affected me and I see it affecting other kids daily and especially children and families of color. And so all of these things to me are important and and ways that I can do research and make a difference in terms of my scholarly output, but also give back to my community. And and so doing this kind of work for me in a way uh, is just an extension of how I've lived my life. And so I'm very fortunate to be in that position that I can study and help advance uh, a field that has actually affected me so much personally.
0: That's really compelling and powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So you have, as we've established, a wide array of experiences and expertise, and I'm really excited to dive in to learn more. Can yeah. you start by explaining your and Nuestra Langua program, please?
1: Yeah. So again, this is definitely uh, an extension of my work and my life. So the story, first of all, it's called In Nuestra Lengua, In Our Language, because when my kids who are now teenagers were growing up and we speak only Spanish in the home, and they actually started kindergarten in Ann Arbor as native Spanish speakers who were learning English, but walking through the streets in Ann Arbor, they would always ask me, mommy, what is that person saying in our language, in Nuestra Lengua? So I would have to translate to Spanish what we were hearing the people saying in English. Uh, And comes to find out, we kind of did this really impromptu survey among Spanish-speaking families that we knew. Uh, There wasn't a program for our kinds of families who wanted to maintain Spanish and make sure that our kids uh, would be able to read and write in Spanish and therefore be bilingual in the long run and not lose uh, a very important aspect of their heritage and opportunities because we all know. How the world opens for you if you are very much bilingual, right? Uh, and so back in 2009, we started doing some investigations just very casually, not affiliated with the university or doing anything, uh, just as uh, a couple of parents getting together to see if we could start a play group for Spanish speaking kids. And I made some flyers. And I went to the public library and I heard people speaking Spanish and I gave them these flyers and that took me like 20 minutes to hand out my 15 flyers. And so on the day that we had indicated, okay, we're all gonna get together on this uh, school playground, hang out and think of something uh, for our kids to play in Spanish, uh, 50 parents showed up with their kids. So we had like a hundred kids, right? And we said, we have to do something formal. What can we do? I started looking around at the university for resources, um, connected with the Ginsburg Center, connected with really amazing colleagues here at the university uh, who were interested in looking at these populations of parents who are immigrants, kids who are mastering English. And, and we put together a program. and. The first year was wonderful. It was like beginner's luck. We got a huge grant. Things looked like, wow, this is easy. We can do this. (laughs) And then it all fell apart. (laughs) And um, we had to start from zero in a way of finding funds. We are not um, funded through the University of Michigan in a dedicated way that we get uh, regular funding from the university, Uh, but uh, we get definitely administrative support and. help with uh, publicity in ways that are very um, rewarding and helpful and useful. And and so um, that's what In Nuestra Lengua is, how it started. And uh, we're a Saturday school that works with a regular primary school curriculum, pre-kindergarten through grade five, uh, working with kids in Spanish. So we do language arts, science, math, everything that they do in their regular school day, but we do it in Spanish. Uh, and not only do we work with the kids, but we also uh, help parents by having different workshops and navigating through the US uh, school system with immigrant parents. Many times they're coming from systems that are totally different than what we do here in the US. And there's often this kind of misassumption or sometimes a negative uh, idea that Latinx parents and Latino families don't care about education, uh, which is couldn't be farther from the truth. But uh, there's just a different uh, opinion and different way of thinking about education and the role of the teacher and the role of the parents. So one of our uh, missions is to help parents become advocates for their kids in the way that you have to do here in the US and help them become involved in the school activities and using the model that we have in the US and kind of leaving behind the Latin American or the Spanish speaking model that they grew up with. So that's what Inuestra Lengua does. We've been doing this for 12 years. So we're tried and true. Um, We have a lot of uh, people who model us. We have been uh, recognized as a program that should be replicated through the US through the Center for Applied Linguistics in Washington DC. We mentor hundreds of University of Michigan grad students and undergrads uh, who come to us looking for an authentic context of studying Spanish-speaking children and families. We also mentor high school students, many of them of color here uh, in the local area. Uh, And we mentor uh, teachers and administrators in the local Ann Arbor schools, giving them best practices and helping them to serve uh, Spanish speaking and immigrant families better in the local schools and public schools here in Ann Arbor. So we we do quite a bit of outreach, um, but our main focus is definitely literacy. And we know that if you help a child uh, maintain literacy in their home language, that actually catapults English, so their English and achievement in um, English, math, science, um, language arts actually progresses as well. So it's win-win for for everyone.
0: What an incredible program. I'm so glad that you shared that full history. It's really astonishing that you know this has become what it is, and um just the way that you you created it um and i such a fantastic example of public engagement and community engagement work which is what i wanted to ask you next is can you share some of the different ways that you facilitate scholarly and community engagement work
1: yeah thank you and you can tell i'm i'm very passionate about this so i uh... I can go on and on, and I'm saying I and me, but of course this is all a team effort. None of this happens without uh, so many people who are volunteering uh, all of their time and their expertise and putting together so many resources uh, for the good of families and children. Uh, so is is very inspiring. Um, and so for me, again, uh, I am so privileged that my scholarly work can be extended to public engagement work. So when we're uh, documenting our Saturday program and doing evaluations in language, literacy, math, uh, STEM projects on our children, we're also collecting valuable data uh, that hasn't been really uh, seen here in the US, and especially not in the Midwest US. So uh, I get a rich source of data and we also uh, are supporting families and children. And so if you find that magic spot to be able to use your research and expertise uh, to help the community, Yeah, that's the best of both worlds. And I understand that it's complicated for some scholars to do, um, but uh, I think in a way, if you find people that you can collaborate, for example, in Nuestra Lengua, we work with um, engineering school. We work with people in school of uh, natural resources, uh, definitely psychology. And education, linguistics, but we work with uh, grad students in lots of programs uh, and are able to find ways to connect uh, what they're doing to what our kids need to learn. Uh, And we work a lot with um, SACNAS, which uh, is an association of Native American and uh, Hispanic or Latinx uh, students uh, who work in the fields of science and STEM. And so uh, they are angels um, that come once a year and do a huge science fair. It's one of the highlights of our uh, school year at In Nuestra Lengua and they do it all in Spanish and they bring all their props and all their different science exhibits. So they bring all their different activities and swag and everything and get the kids all hyped up uh, to do science in Spanish. Um, We're doing uh, a beautiful collaboration with the Museum of Natural History Uh, Making sure that uh, Spanish-speaking families uh, have access in Spanish to the different exhibits and to the different projects and um, all of the different activities that you can do at the U of M Museum of Natural History. So the way that my research uh, connects me as a scholar and me as uh, part of this Spanish-speaking community with other uh, colleagues and families uh, is beautiful, is magic.
0: It's so great to hear. So I want to ask about uh, a different project that you're working on. So can you tell me about your work regarding ethnic racial identity in small children and language use?
1: Yeah. Again, this is a project that some people approach me uh, in psychology and in the combined program of education and psychology that they're uh, looking at uh, racial, ethnic identity, uh, which has mostly been a field that has looked at uh, students of color, but adolescents. And, and so they were uh, interested in looking at young children. Uh, so I just made the um, observation that uh, one big mark of identity is actually our language and how we use languages. And, and so uh, not to step on the toes of really uh, gifted and uh, prominent scholars like Debbie Rivas Drake here at the University of Michigan, uh, or Gianna Umania Taylor, who are working on ethnic racial identity and now looking across the lifespan. Uh, In my research group, we're looking at this focus of ethnic racial identity as it pertains to language use. And so uh, how do kids feel about using Spanish and what context do they want to use? their home language? What context do they want to use English? Uh, how do we get kids uh, motivated to maintain Spanish uh, when they're in situations where they're the only people who speak Spanish? So that's the kind of lens that we're looking at, it's ethnic racial identity. And if kids have pride uh, for being a certain ethnic group or a certain racial identity. And how uh, does that um, come through in terms of how they use their different languages? So it's it's a very, young kind of in research project because again we're looking at these age groups that before uh, the last couple of years haven't really um, been uh, investigated and so we have found that kids as young as five years old have a very strong sense of their ethnic identity related to language uh, and we published uh, some papers on this fact showing that uh, very young kids know exactly that they're Mexican or Argentinian, right? So that they're Argentinian or Cuban. And um, they they get that entails also um, speaking certain words in Spanish or knowing a lot of Spanish. So uh, that's our contribution to this excellent research that's, that's going on uh,
0: about ethnic identity across the lifespan. And you also conduct research on code switching. So can you first explain what code switching is? And then can you share how you're studying this from a linguistic perspective?
1: Code switching originally is from a linguistic perspective. So the uh, original studies and the use of the term came about from the 1920s with linguists who were uh, studying indigenous populations in the US and wondering uh, how they were going back and forth between different languages and dialects. And so the term code switching literally means to right, alternate languages. And you can do that within a sentence. You can do that within a discourse context. Uh, so there are lots of ways that you can um, mix your languages. Uh, And lots of times people refer to it as a bilingual behavior. And it's something that monolinguals don't do. right? So it's something that um, distinguishes a person uh, as being a proficient bilingual. And it's very typical behavior of bilinguals. Sometimes it's stigmatized to switch between languages. And people talk about uh, Spanglish and maybe say it in terms of a negative connotation. But it's actually very natural, especially when you're living in an intense uh, situations where both of your languages are in contact very regularly. It's very natural that you have your brain organized to be able to go back and forth, right? And in any time, and in any context between your two languages. So our work on code switching has a, a lot of different dimensions. Uh, one thing we're interested in children and their code switching behaviors uh, and when they switch and when they know that they can't switch. So as I said, uh, code switching in the linguistic uh, realm has to do with alternating between languages, and it's something that bilinguals do. So you would not code switch a a monolingual person because they're not going to understand half of the conversation. And small kids seem to know intuitively who they can switch with and who they have to just maintain the same monolingual um, kind of mode. So that's really interesting to us, how children pick up on the cues that give them that kind of knowledge. I'm also working within this realm of bilingualism and code switching with uh, an amazing student in the School of Music, who is looking at how linguistic code switching and music code switching, so the idea of how people switch as musicians between genres and maybe combined genres in terms of performance, how that relates to ethnic and racial minority music students and how um, they have to be able to navigate all these different ways of switching between music genres, between languages, and also behaviorally. So the third way of code switching that people talk about is this idea that uh, people, switch their behaviors or their social norms uh, according to the group they're with. And so African-American students here at the University of Michigan discuss this a lot about how they have to switch into their kind of Anglo or white mode of behaving or dressing or just kind of acting when they're uh, in the classroom here at the University of Michigan. So in our study with the music, We look at all these different aspects of behavioral code switching and music code switching and linguistic code switching and come up with a model that shows just how exhausting it is to be a student of color and have to be able to navigate all these dynamics and switches uh, where as a person who's a part of the dominant group basically can maintain their same (laughs) persona language and music genre because everything was already kind of fit for them and so they well they have the luxury of kind of maintaining their one way of being without having to go through all of these switches and so um, our work is showing how the daily experiences for students of color beyond having to study beyond having to be working and maintaining right their livelihoods is just this kind of tiring exercise of switching in terms of so many aspects of your life.
0: Thanks for diving into that. <laughs> so Dr. Satterfield, you are also a 2021 Public Engagement Faculty Fellowship Mentor Fellow. What has that experience been like?
1: It's been amazing working with the Center of Academic Achievement and meeting all of the people as a mentor. I feel definitely that I received as much as I gave in terms of knowledge and, and just being a, made aware of all the phenomenal people on this campus who have public engagement projects that uh, are flying under the radar, right? But they're they continue to do these fabulous projects, and to work in communities and to make a difference, and they're not receiving recognition. And a lot of times, uh, they're doing this work that needs to be modeled and needs to be recognized because uh, they put together such amazing systems. And and when I think of uh, outreach and scholarship, uh, I always use an analogy of an ecosystem, right? That uh, really we're building. These amazing societies uh, within our community projects and um, adding the university's existence and um, piece onto that puzzle. And uh, to be able to do that uh, takes so many skills and logistics and partnerships. And so um, to be able to find my tribe uh, as a public engagement faculty fellow mentor <laughs> uh, has been really uh, life-changing. I I told uh, the group that it was a transformative experience for me that reminded me why I do this, and also uh, helped me connect with other people uh, who are moral support, but also just great examples that gave me new ideas. And I'm a senior senior Person here at the university. I, I've been here for over 20 years, and to become energized again this summer, and especially on Zoom, right when we're all zoomed out and right. But to be able to connect and to look forward uh, every day to those um, meetings, it, it was it was incredible, and I, I, I carry it with me. So it's still uh, very much uh, a part of how I'm thinking now, and uh, so that that's been great. I recommend anyone who uh, is interested in public engagement to connect uh, with this uh, faculty fellowship uh, program. It it, it will definitely change how you're thinking about things.
0: I love to hear that. It's an incredible program. And um, I have been lucky to collaborate with the Center of Academic Innovation a lot on um, working with the fellows and the mentor fellows and getting to know so many of you and learning more about the incredible community engagement work that you do. So I'm so glad to hear that it's been a really great experience for you as well. And it, it brought us here to talk about all of your great work uh, for our podcast today. Yes.
1: Exactly. I would not have known that uh, this kind of opportunity existed. So thank you for that. And yeah, and for being a part of the fellowship program. So uh, again, it's the opportunities are there, the resources are there, uh, are here at a place like Michigan. We just need someone
0: sometimes to to show us the way. Yes, Absolutely. Okay, so we're running out of time. And I want to ask you uh, something that is one of my favorite questions to ask. What is a key takeaway that you want everyone listening to remember from this conversation?
1: Yeah, so this is an amazing question. So I'm going to dive in deep to something very specific that's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, And here's what I want people to take away from people who, uh, like me, are scholars on language and bilingualism and communities and immigration and things like that, that. There's no such thing as a foreign language. Please stop using that term. Uh, because my language is important to me when I'm speaking Spanish, right? So you want to call it a world language, you want to call it, but uh, languages are not foreign, and we can all access different languages, and we can learn something by studying a different language. So the takeaway to me is um, that language is the um, consummate part of being human. It's the quintessential aspect of our humanity. And so The fact that we can study it, that we can share it, that we can use it to engage one another, uh, that's, that's what it's all about.
0: An incredible takeaway, something to really keep us thinking, and I wanted to ask if there's anything else that you want to share before we wrap up. Uh, I just want to say
1: that uh, I want to congratulate all of the scholars and colleagues who have been working during Latino Heritage Month, um, putting together amazing activities and recognition for all of the different uh, Hispanic and Latino and Latinx scholars and contributors uh, here on campus and and elsewhere in the US and in the world. So I hope people have been energized by this month and that it's helping, again, be part of a dialogue in the US that we need to have in terms of bringing us all to the table, right? Um, Because so many groups participate and contribute uh, and have a place in this history.
0: A great message to end on about inclusivity and coming together in celebration. Dr. Satterfield, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I greatly appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much, Erica. It's been great.
0: Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.